friends well. Here we go. Here we go. You, get, you guys came back, so this is on you, okay? Last week I was all apologetic, and I was like, I know politics, it's, it's hard, but now you came back, so now it's fair game, all right? Um, just kidding. For those of you who weren't here last week, we started a series on politics in the church. Um, and we are going to be preaching through this over the next few weeks here at Flourishing Grace, um, trying to figure out kind of how, how do we live faithfully in this season. I said last week, that's the goal. The goal is not so much to talk about politics. I'm not going to kind of talk about all of the issues of, of the Democratic Party and all the issues of the Republican Party. We're going to paint with broad brushes and just answer the question, I mean, how do we live, how do Christians at Flourishing Grace Church, how do we live faithfully during this time? I have zero desire to influence your vote, which I know is actually kind of controversial. Some people say, no, no, Josh, you don't understand. This is so important. You need to tell people to vote for this candidate. And then the other half of the room is like, no, 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 you need to vote for this candidate. I have zero desire. Listen, I said this last week, and I genuinely mean it. I don't care who you vote for. You can vote for Trump. You can vote for Biden. You can vote for Kanye if you are that dumb. Um, I, I, this is on, it's on camera. I just got recorded saying that. No, no, genuinely, I don't care. I don't care. You can vote for whoever you want to vote for. It does not matter to me. What I want is for you to love Jesus, love Jesus more than you love the person you vote for. That's what I want. I want you to love Jesus and be, pledge allegiance to Christ, not to a political party. How do we live faithfully in this time? Last week we talked about unity, right? And the, and the, and the biblical call to be united, one mind, to have, to have one body, to, to have this oneness, this harmony, to be fully united together. And how in America, the church is failing at that. We're not doing a good job. If you missed that, you can go online. And I really, I laid the groundwork for the whole series last week. And the truth is, the hardest thing about this series is the amount of time that I have. There's just not enough time. I cut about a third of last week's um, sermon out, and, I'm, and I've cut about half, or maybe more than half, of this week's sermon out. There's just not enough time to get into it, all of it. And so go back and listen to last week. If you missed that, flourishinggrace.org slash listen, you can find it there. We talked about unity last week and how the church is called a unity. And, and every day that we allow politics to come in here, it is dividing us. We must, we must stop that. We must get back to being united as brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ. This week, I want to talk about hope. I want to talk about hope. Hope is absolutely something that we are called to in the Word of God. Hope should mark the church. The church should be the most hopeful people on the planet. We should, we should just ooze hope wherever we go. We should be people who give hope wherever we go, right? There's that quote, that Tolkien quote, and I'm going to butcher it, okay? So if you are a Tolkien fan, I'm sorry. Um, this is not in my notes. I'm just talking. Um, there's, that, there's that moment in The Lord of the Rings where they say, um, men, we, we are men who give hope but we take none for ourselves, right? Tolkien's talking about the church, man. We, we, are, we are to be people who give hope to everybody, but our hope doesn't come from this world, so we're not taking any from ourselves. All the hope that we'll ever have has been given to us in Christ. We should be a hopeful people. The power of hope is an incredible thing. It's won battles that were unwinnable. It's one battle. The power of hope is one battle that, that, that when you look at it, it's like on paper, there's no way that should have happened. It's one war. So you look at it on paper, it's like there's no way that should have happened, but the people who are fighting had hope that they could actually get it done. It's accomplished great expeditions that seem humanly impossible, but they had hope that they could get it done. It has saved lives. By our very nature, we are a hope-motivated people. We long for hope. We want to be hopeful. 
It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. I know not everybody in the room is a Christian. I know not everybody watching online is a Christian. But we all want hope. We want to be hopeful. We want people to give us hope. There's a good feeling that we have when we have hope. The reality is, and what I want you to see this morning, is that politics in America is in the business of selling hope. They, they want you to buy their hope. This is, this is absolutely crystal clear. If you're like, no, no, that's true, Josh. Let me, let me just lay it out for you. Uh, just in this past week or so, Trump uh, get, released this brand new um, campaign video, this big powerful video where he's the hero of everything. Um, and the title of the video is literally Hope and Promises. That's the title, Hope and Promises. Now Biden, in his acceptance speech back in August, he promised a, a path of light and hope. Light and hope. This is what they're selling. And if you don't, don't believe me, I'm sure you remember this picture. Can we throw that picture up here? You guys remember that one, right? Hope. Like, that's what's being sold. That, that, is, that is what they want you to buy. They're selling hope, and they want you to buy it. Today's elections are won not by arguing platforms and selling the best strategies for our nation. Listen, if you listen to the, I guess we can still call them debates, um, if you listen to it, if you listen to the political leaders speak, speeches in their town hall gatherings and in their debates. They're not saying, here's my strategy. Here's my plan. Let me, let me spell it out for you. Here's the percentage that we're going to spend on this. Here's the percentage of this budget we're going to spend on this. Things that actually matter. Here's how we're going. Here's my strategy for doing this. No, no, no. What they're selling is fear and hope. Fear and hope. How do I get you to be afraid? And how do I show you that I'm the only hope you have of ever surviving this? And I'm not picking on Republicans. I'm not picking on Democrats. I'm picking on both of them. They're both doing it. The world is literally going to melt, and I'm the only hope you have. We are going to be broke, and I'm the only hope you have. There's there's so many things that these candidates want you to be afraid of, and they they want you to see them as the only hope you have. The reason you vote for the candidate that you will vote for will boil down to hope. Who do you have hope in? That's, the, that's, that's, that's what's going to drive your vote. Now, some of you might say, no, nope, Josh, not me. Not me. I care more about the economy, and I want to know how we're going to get our economy back in order after this global pandemic, and that's what I want to know. That's what I'm going to vote for. No, no, no. You're voting for the candidate that you have the greatest level of hope in securing our economy. For those of you who are like, no, 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 I care about the environment, and that's, that's my issue. That's what no, 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 you're voting for the candidate that you have the greatest hope in for our environment. It boils down to hope. How do they get you to place your hope in them? If you don't think hope plays, you are the one being played. Hope absolutely plays. What I want you to be able to do, friends, is this. I want you to be able to watch your candidate, whoever that person may be, all the candidates, and as you watch them deliver their speeches, I want you to be able to say, oh, here's the thing they're trying to get me to be afraid of. Whether that's right or wrong, whether that's real or not, here's the thing they want me to be afraid of, and here's how they are selling me on hope. They are the only hope for this fear. If you can't see that every time on the left and on the right, you are living blind to this. And they've got you. They've got you. 
Now, now hear me, before we get into this too much, I want, you, I want you to understand this. Hope's not the enemy. Hope's not a bad thing. I said the church should ooze hope. We should be the most hopeful people on the planet. Hope is a good thing. We all have hope in so many things, big things and little things. I hope that the Bears will win another Super Bowl in my lifetime. That would be amazing. Just one, just one, that's all I ask. One, that's my hope. I hope that I still have a job after this series on politics, okay? That's my hope. We open real things, though. I hope my boys grow up, and I hope there's never a moment in their life that they can ever recall not loving Jesus more than they love anything in the world. I hope they grow up to be healthy and strong and kind and gentle and fierce all at the same time. I hope my wife and I grow old together and that we grow in our love every single day. I hope that my friends, I hope that my friends are protected and they're healthy and that our friendship grows as life goes on and, they, and it, it never deteriorates, but it just keeps growing stronger and stronger and stronger. All of us in this room have real hopes. You hope the doctor calls and there's a cure for that. You hope that you can get through this time of job loss. There's, there's deep hopes in this room. But you know the one thing that they all have in common? All of them. Not one. Not one is guaranteed. Not one is assured. You cannot be sure of that hope. You can't. Now some of you will say, Josh, that's what hope is, dummy. You can't be sure of it. That's why it's called hope. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. If you got your Bibles, let's go. Hebrews 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, Hebrews 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. The author of Hebrews is writing to a church that is um, unbelievably persecuted, just enduring immense hardship. And he's writing to, to give them hope. He kind of gives kind of the thesis of his work here in chapter 6. And I love this text. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one underneath the seat you're sitting in, and it'll be up here on the screen for you as well, for those of you who are watching online. Hebrews 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. The author writes this. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have full, what's the word? Assurance of hope. That's what I want. I want you to have full assurance of hope. How is that possible? Full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. That's what I want. I want your hope to be so strong that you imitate those who have gone before you, who have been so faithful to the very end, and they've secured the promises that God has made for them. That's what I want. And I was going to go on to give an example of one of those people. In verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, what is he talking about? He, the, the author's original Jewish Christian audience would have instantly known what's going on here. They would have, they would have gotten the whole scene locked down. They know the story. They've, known, they've memorized it since they were little boys and girls. They know what's going on here, okay? But for us, maybe, maybe you're not so aware of what the author's talking about. Here's what he's doing. He's giving an example of one who lived with this great assurance of hope, rock solid hope, Abraham. God shows up to Abraham before his name was Abraham, Abram, right? When he was a younger man, still kind of old, but a younger man, and he says this, he, he says, 
I'm from you line, I'm going to give you a son, and from your line is going to come one who blesses all the nations of the earth. Your descendants will be like the sand in the, of, the, of the seashore, of the stars of the sky. I'm going to give you nation, a nation is going to come from you. Now, Abraham was an old man, and his wife was barren. She wasn't able to have kids. But Abraham said, my God has promised it. Therefore, it's sure. Does it happen? Takes a while. Decades go by. Decades. His friends and family make fun of him. He's like, no, no, no. My God has promised it. It is sure. Decades go by. And his wife, who's over 100 years old, and barren her entire life, delivers a baby named Isaac. And Isaac is born, and as Isaac grows up, when Isaac gets a little bit older, he's still a young boy, when he grows up, God says, I want him. I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham says, okay. This rock-solid assurance of hope. God has promised me a son. He's promised me that he's going to create a nation from me. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed from my line. This is sure. It is steadfast. It's not going anywhere. I will be faithful to the end. So he takes the sticks, takes the knife, and he takes his boy up to the top of the mountain. Isaac on the way up is like, hey, Dad, I think we forgot something. Where's the ram, man? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And he gets to the top of the mountain. He builds the altar. He binds his son, who realizes what's happening now. And you, you, you can't imagine the scene, the screaming, the, the weeping, the agony. As he lays his boy, his beloved promised son, on the altar, he draws the knife with everything in him, trusting the Lord. And as he's about to plunge this, this knife into his boy, an angel of the Lord says, stop. And there's a ram that is given to him in the thicket. And then the angel of the Lord says to him this. This comes from Genesis 22. You don't need to flip there. I'll throw it up on, here on the screen for you. Genesis 22, 16 through 18. The angel of the Lord said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. That's what the author of Hebrews is quoting. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. By myself, I swear. By myself, I swear. The offer of Hebrews, if you're following along in Hebrews, goes on to say this in verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He sums it all up in that little line, okay? Um, there's so much going on here. So much going on. This unbelievable, unwavering hope in his God. He says, I know my God will be faithful to me. He has promised it. It is sure. It is steadfast. It's, and it's not going anywhere. And I'll be faithful to the very, very end. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath, is final for confirmation. What's going on here? Here's what the author of Hebrews is doing. Um, what is something that people swear by? Um, think about when you're a little kid and you're on the playground and you want to make sure that everybody believes you. I'm going to get this thing for Christmas. or I'm going to do this thing. It's going to be amazing. I, I swear, uh, right? What's something that we swear by? 
Anybody? What's something that kids swear by? What's that? Uh, yeah, cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a thousand needles in my eye. None of these things are smart things, okay? None of them make any sense, right? But literally, if I, if I don't deliver on the promise, okay, you can stick a thousand needles in my eyeball and then kill me. If I don't deliver on the promise, you can go to prison for the rest of your life. It's a good deal. No, it's dumb. It doesn't make any sense. I swear on my mother's grave. If I don't deliver, you can kill my mother. None of these make any sense. But these are things we swear, swear by. What the author of Hebrews is getting at is this. We have to have something greater than ourselves to swear by. Because no one will believe you unless it's guaranteed. If you want to give somebody hope that what you're saying is true, put something down on that. The guy who says, man, I will be there, I promise. Versus the guy who says, I'll be there, and if I'm not there, I'll give you $1,000. Which one are you going to believe? Which one is giving you a greater hope in their presence? I know which one is giving me a greater hope. I'm still praying that their car breaks down on the way so I get that $1,000. But I know which one's giving me a greater hope. We need something greater than ourselves to swear by in order to instill a greater hope. What does our God swear by? Himself. Because there is nothing greater. In the entire universe, in all of creation, there's nothing greater than our God. And so when he desired to give this great assurance of hope, to make you so unbelievably sure this promise was true. He swore by himself. If this does not come true, I will cease to exist. There will be no more me. I swear by myself. The greatest thing he could swear by, it was himself. What politician is giving you that level of assurance? What politician is saying in the debate, listen, here's what I'm going to do for you. And if I don't, you can hang me from the Washington Monument and and torture me to death. None of them. Because they know it's not true. They know it's not true. God wants your hope in him. Verse 17, I just quoted it a second ago. I thought we had already read it, but we hadn't. Whoops. Um, Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promises the unchangeable character of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath. So he says, I swear by myself, and in case that's not enough, let let me, the final thing is an oath. Because you have done this, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's my oath to you. He gives Abraham an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God has gone to great lengths to give you a hope that is worth clinging to. A hope that is sure and steadfast. A hope that is guaranteed, that is assured. Why does God do all of this? Why does he do all this? Why does he do all this for Abraham? Why does he do all this for you and for me? Because he wants your hope. He wants all of your hope to be in him and not in anything else. He does not want Biden to have it. He does not want Trump to have it. He certainly doesn't want Kanye to have it. He wants it all. 
He wants it all. He wants your hope. And I believe that modern American political parties are robbing us of the hope that ultimately belongs to God. Political parties are saying, I have hope for you. I have hope for our nation. I have hope for your desires. I have hope for your issues. And I am the greatest hope for that. And what we have done, we have failed our God by taking our hope from him and placing it in these men and in these parties and in these political ideas that have, for a matter of fact, failed us again and again and again and again. They've never delivered on the promises. It's only gotten worse. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It only gets worse. We have grieved our God by taking our hope that belongs to him and giving it away to lesser things. Now, here's what I want to do. For the next few minutes, I want to, just like we did last week, I want to kind of peel back the lid and look inside and say, okay, really, how is this playing out? How, how is this going down? And, and if you were here last week, you know that I, I, I don't care. I don't care. Um, if you're a Republican or a Democrat, I'm, go, I'm going to just kind of lay it out for you all. I'm going to start with our Republican friends in the room. And don't worry, I'm going to get to those liberals too. Just give me a minute, all right? What are, how, is this, how is this playing out for Republicans? How, how does this play out for our conservative friends? Republican Christians, listen, hope, if I'm painting with a really broad brush, their hope is that their party can restore Christian values in America. Okay? If you boil it all down, if you take everything, all of the politics and all of the ideas and all of the agendas and you boil it down, and I'm not talking about Republicans, I'm talking about Republican Christians. Okay? Listen to me. I know not everybody in the room is a follower of Jesus. I know not everybody watching online is a follower of Jesus. I'm talking about followers of Jesus who would say, man, I am also a Republican. They hope that their party can restore Christian values in America. If there's a hope for restoring Christian values, it's in the Republican Party. That is what my Republican Christian friends have said. Now, whether or not America was ever really had Christian values or ever really was a Christian nation, that's a, that's a topic for another day that we're never going to preach on here. Um, I'm happy to have that conversation with you, but it's not going to happen today. Conservatives want to make America great again. This is not a secret. It's literally on every red hat in our nation, okay? But what does that mean for Christian Republicans. Making America great again means that we are reinstalling a cultural morality that came to an end in the early 1960s. That's what it means. We want to reinstall, reinstate a cultural morality that came to the end in the early 1960s. How, why, where do I get that date, 1960s? Um, there's a professor of theology. He's actually a professor of theological ethics. He's retired now um, at Duke uh, Divinity School. His name is Stanley Hauerwas. If you don't know anything about Stanley Hauerwas, um, in 2011, Time Magazine said he was America's best theologian. Um, and I would actually say, yeah, that's probably true. He's probably at, the, at least at the very top, top of that list. Um, he is he's there. Hauerwas has had a, a major impact on my life. I don't agree with 100% of what he says, but man, he is, he is a brilliant man. He's now 80 years old, and he is still all there. He is sharp as a tack. And I love listening to him talk because he, he's the 80-year-old guy. You know, he's like the grandpa that can just get away with saying anything. And he's like, that's what grandpa says, right? He talks with, I mean, there's, there's some profanity mixed in there. 
there's, there's some amazing one-liners that he has that just like, I couldn't even, I thought about working him in my sermon today. I was like, man, I, I honestly, I probably would lose my job if I said that. Um, he's amazing. It is amazing to listen to him talk. And he's written many, many books. And one of the books that has impacted me greatly as far as my position and my thinking around politics in America is a book called Resident Aliens. Resident Aliens, where he takes kind of the, the, the theology of First Peter and he brings it into modern day America for us, for the church in America. And in that book, at the very beginning, he talks about this moment in Greenville, South Carolina in 1936, ni- sorry, 1963, 1963, in Greenville, South Carolina, 1963, in defiance of the state's time-honored blue laws, the Fox Theater opened on Sunday. I don't know if you guys know what blue laws are. Um, for, for, for those of you who are younger in the room, you, you probably don't know. to secularity in the Western world, serve notice that it would no longer be a prop for the church. There, wouldn't be, there would be no more free passes for the church, no more free rides. The Fox Theater went head-to-head with the church over who would provide the worldview for the youth. That night, in 1963, the Fox Theater won the opening skirmish. You see, for my Christian Republicans, what, what, what we ask is this, how do we get back to before that moment? I'm not saying that 1963 in Greenville, South Carolina is like the end-all, be-all, right? It's a microcosm of like the whole picture. How do we get back to 1962? Like that's the real question. Like that's what we want. That's what we want our culture to look like. And in fairness, there is something about that that is appealing. I want to show you a picture. This picture um, is from Flora, Illinois, um, in what happened in Florida from 1961, 1961, Flora, Illinois. And what happened in 1961 in Flora, Illinois is Ford Motor Company decided to do this crazy marketing scheme. And what they did is they, they, they created this, this week called Fordtown USA. And what they did was they found the, the center of population in the United States of America. They said, okay, where, where do people live and what is the center of that population? It's always been moving west. And in 1961, if you went from north to south, east to west, the center of population was a little town called Flora, Illinois. In Fort Town, USA, they shipped on trains thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Ford motor vehicles, all white, white, brand new 1961 Fords. Every make and every model that they had, every single one. And they parked them in a field outside of Flora, Illinois. And if you were a resident of Flora, Illinois, you could go to the field and you could pick whatever one you wanted. And for a week, you could to drive a brand new car. And if then the next day you changed your mind, you should go get another one. So maybe, maybe one day you're in the mood to drive a Thunderbird. And you just tear it up. And the next day you're like, i got to take the kids someplace so you go get a station wagon. And the next day you're like, I want a truck. So you go down there and you get a truck. For a week, you can drive a new car every single day. And they're all brand new 1961 white Fords. This picture is an important picture for my family. It hangs in our house. And 
You see all those white 1961 Fords, except for the one with the convertible right there. It's not a 1961. That car's a 1955. I don't know that because I know anything about cars. I don't know anything about cars. That's my dad's car. He's in the passenger seat. And the next day, he's shipped out to Germany to go join the army. Or he's already in the army. He's getting shipped out to Germany the next day. That's his car. And it hangs in our house. And, and I always look at that, and it's kind of like this moment. I love that photo because it does remind you of a simpler time. A time before computers, a time before smartphones, a time before social media and cyberbullying, and time before um, this, this instant access to global pornography that is driving thousands and thousands and thousands into sex trafficking, a time before um, methamphetamine and global pandemics, a time before just all of this insanity. Like, it just, like, wouldn't it be, like, one of my goals in life, genuinely, is to get, I want to own a 1955 Ford convertible, white with a black top, and I want to go drive down the street in Florida, Illinois. That's, that's one of my goals. I want to do that. I don't care about cars, but I want that car. But there's another thing that, that picture reminds me of. When I look at that black and white photo and all those white cars, if I could get back there, all of my black brothers and sisters couldn't eat in the same restaurant as me. The kids couldn't go to the same school as me. Martin Luther King hadn't delivered his I Have a Dream speech yet. The Civil rights movement had barely begun. We are so far behind in so many ways as a nation, so broken, so unbelievably broken. It's a flawed idea to think if we could just get back there, everything would be great. The only people we'd be great for is white males. For everybody else, it's not that great of a time. Hauerwas goes on to say in that book, he says, on that night, Wrong, wrong quote. We in no way mean to imply that before 1963, things were better for believers. It's not true. We want to believe that, but it's not true. Our point is that before the Fox Theater opened on Sunday, Christians could deceive themselves into thinking that we were in charge, that we had made a difference. We had created a Christian culture. Before the Fox Theater opened on Sunday... We could convince ourselves with an adapted, domesticated gospel. We could fit American values into a loosely Christian framework. We could, and we could thereby be culturally significant. Friends, it's an imaginary idea. And it actually led to the decay. That's what you have to realize, is that, is that 1961, that led to the decay. That led to where we are. That's the reason why we are where we are today. You say, how is that possible? What are you talking about, Joseph? How, how is that where we are today? It's happened again and again and again and again and again for the past 2,000 years. Everywhere in the world where the church rises to a place of prominence, when it rises to a place where it thinks it's in control, where it thinks it has an authority, when it thinks it has a significance, when it thinks that it is in some way, shape, or form forming the culture of its day, that moment is followed by Decades, if not centuries, of moral decay. Again and again and again and again. It happened in Rome, it happened in Europe, and it's happened here. Why? Why? Because the church forgets that they are desperate for God, and there is no hope in our culture or our, in our politics. 
We are a flawed people living in a flawed system, fully dependent on God every moment, even in 1961. It was not a good time for the church because it took our eyes off of our true hope. It was not a good time for the church because it took our eyes off of our true hope. Every day that you spend placing your hope in the Republican Party to restore America is a day that you do not place your hope in God to move us out of this moment. My Republican Christian friends in the room, if you didn't hear anything I said, if you're just like tuning me out, you took a nap, hear that. Every day that you place your hope in the Republican Party to restore America is a day that you do not place your hope in God to move us out of this moment that we are in. God alone is our hope. Now all of my liberal friends in the room, all of my democratic friends are like, yes. Now it's your turn, okay? I said, I'm coming to you, okay? It's coming for you. Now it's your turn, friends, all right? Here's the reality. My democratic Christian friends, okay? Democratic Christians hope. What is your hope? Democratic Christians hope their party can bring good kingdom values to America. Now, all of my Republican Christians just rolled their eyes so far back in the back of their head um, that it hurt. Okay? It's true. There is such thing as Democratic Christians, man. And they're in this room. They are your brothers and sisters. And they actually do long for that. They long. They long for their party. They hope their party can instill for the first time ever, not bring us back to a day when it didn't really exist, but to instill for the first time ever kingdom values in America. What does this look like? Kingdom values. Care for the poor. Care for the poor. If you think that caring for the poor is not a kingdom value, you haven't read your Bible. How do we care for the poor? How do we care for the refugee? It's absolutely a kingdom value. How do we care for the jobless or for the single mom or those with pre-existing health conditions? How do we care for our environment? These are all kingdom values. Democratic Christians want to love their neighbor. And genuinely, I would say they actually are probably doing a better job at it than most of my Republican Christian friends on a global scale, on a political scale. But again, this is propped up to be a guaranteed hope when it's really not. It's not a guaranteed hope. You see, Democratic Christians think that if we can just get everybody more educated, everybody more wealthy, everybody more healthy, if everyone was just woke, then you would see that we were right all along. And we would go on to live in this utopian bliss where all of the issues and all of the problems are so clear and we can attack them together. It would unify us all if we could just get everybody more educated. You see, the problem is, is that there is a small group of people at the top of all things and all of the power, all of the wealth, and all of kind of the security lies with them. And they're so far removed from like the poor inner city kid. That's the problem with America. And so if we could take the power, if we could take the wealth, and we can take this kind of security from this group, and we can spread it to everybody, right? If we could, take, if we could tax the super rich and give it to the poor, let's increase the minimum wage. If we could get the poor free education, free health care, if we could get everybody a little bit smarter, a little bit healthier, and a little bit wealthier, then everybody would see we were right all along and we'd live in utopian bliss, I'm not going to lie, that sounds awesome. Utopian bliss, sign me up for that. But the problem is it's flawed. It's been tried again and again and again and again, and it never works. 
here's the thing you must understand. It does sound good. There are kingdom values there. There are things in that plan and in that strategy that we will see in heaven one day. That's genuine. It's real. It's true. We'll see the poor cared for. We'll see um, the, the people who, who, are not, who are not discriminated against, no matter wh- where their father is or what their mother's done or, or, or the color of their skin. We will see those things one day. But again, there's no real hope for these things in the Democratic Party. The Democratic theory has a flawed beginning. You cannot produce fruit if you don't first address the root. For my Democratic friends who think they are woke, let me wake you up to something. If you take all of the money and all the power and all the security from a small group of sinners who sit at the top of this thing, and you disperse that to a larger group of sinners who sit at the bottom of this thing, you haven't solved the problem at all. The problem will not get smaller. The problem will only be a greater one. I'm not saying that everything's fine. I'm not saying, eh, it's, every, it's fine. It's fine that those people have all the money and all the power and all the, and, and it's fine that people don't have health care. It's fine that people, that's not what I'm saying. It's, just, it's broken. I understand it's broken. I, I get that it's broken. What I'm saying is the strategy doesn't work. As I said, it's been tried again and again and again and again and again. And here's the reality. It never reaches the bottom. Somebody in the middle always says, okay, we are going to take the power now. We are going to take the money now. We are going to take the security now. And we're going to make sure everybody gets it. But they never do. It never makes it to the bottom. And even if it did, even if it made it to the bottom, and the poorest of the poor had the equal opportunities and equal wealth and equal education and equal health, had all of that stuff, the reality is, is now you have everybody on the same playing field and they still all disagree with each other. And you've got the tiger by the tail. Because at some point, they're going to turn on you. You're, you're going to say, you know what, I don't, I don't agree with you anymore. And it's too late. It's too late. Because we're never going to all agree. If you're giving sinners power and wealth and money, you're never going to agree. You can say, actually, I just, you can't live that way. You, you're not allowed to do that because I don't think you should. And you're going to say, Josh, I don't think you should do that. You're not allowed to live with it because I don't think you should. And then I'm going to say, no, no, you shouldn't live that way. I don't think you should because I don't think you... You're never going to agree. It's never going to work out. There's no such thing as utopian bliss in this democratic strategy. Sin is the problem, not power. We need redemption, not equality. Those are different things. For my democratic Christian friends in the room, hear me. Sin is the problem not power. We need redemption, not equality. The Democratic Party cannot bring kingdom values to America. If you place your hope in anything or anyone other than Christ, you are destined for disappointment. And so what do we do? What do we do? Friends, I believe it is time for Christians in America to give up all hope in politics, but to not give up any hope at all. Let me say that again. It's time for Christians in America to give up all hope in politics, but it is not time for us to give up any hope. Let me take you back to Hebrews as we prepare to close. In verse 19, that very next verse, the author goes on to say this. He says, we, Christians, you, me, if you're in Christ, if you're my brother, you're my sister, listen to me, we, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. 
A hope that enters into the innermost place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We, brothers and sisters, have this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope. We have a hope. We have a hope. We need to place our hope there. Instead of placing it in lesser things. There's a sure and steadfast hope. Jesus is the only true anchor of the soul. Jesus is the only one who can truly restore Christian values. Jesus is the only one who can actually address the issue of sin. He is the only sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. If you want a guaranteed hope, put it in the one who sealed the deal by raising from the dead. Put it in the one who said, man, I I am going to rescue and redeem you. I'm going to wash your sins White as wool, pure as snow. And I'm going to guarantee it by raising from the dead. Put it in that one. That is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And the reality is, is that most of us in this room, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, the things that the Christian wants, kind of the core things that the Christian wants, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, are actually the same thing. If you're truly a follower of Christ, the same thing. My Republican friends want to see Christian... Um, kingdom values in state in America. My, 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 my democratic friends would love to see Christian morals restated in America. We want to see those things. But they're only going to come through Christ. Only the spirit of Christ can actually make someone good. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Only the spirit of Christ is going to produce in you the fruit of the spirit. Only the spirit of Christ is going to actually create in you a, a Christian morality. Nope, nope political party can do that there is no hope there it is a it is an empty promise that will never be fulfilled but christ has done it he's done it in me for those who know me before i was a follower of jesus they can tell you there's a sure and steadfast hope there if there's hope for me maybe i'm telling you there's hope for you okay he's done it He's created a morality in me that did not exist before I knew him. He's done it in you. He's the only one that can. He's washed away my sin. He's done it in me. Only the blood of Christ can wipe away our sin. Democratic agendas cannot remove the sin of our nation. Rewriting our history will not rewrite our sin, will not erase our sin. It's still there. It's just pretending that it doesn't exist. It will always be there until Christ removes it. Christ is our only hope. He is the, our only anchor of the soul. If your anchor of the soul is to go back and make America great again, you can't win. If your anchor of the soul is to move forward and create a sinless world without addressing sin, you can't win. Do you guys know what Joe Biden's campaign slogan is? Anybody know? Y'all know Trump's, make America great again. We know that all day long. Marketing genius, that guy. You guys know what Biden is? Marketing fail. Biden's campaign slogan is battle for the soul of the nation. Battle for the soul of the nation. He wants to be your anchor of the soul. I'm not, I'm not picking on him. Trump wants to be your anchor of the soul too. Kanye wants to be your anchor of the soul. There's only one sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. There is no hope in modern American politics. 
And here's the thing, for those of us who place our hope in Christ and only in Christ, for those, of us who, for those of us who will willingly do the hard work of removing our hope that we place in all of these lesser things, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, by removing our hope that we place in all of these lesser things and placing it in Christ and Christ alone, if you can place all of your hope there and say, Man, I do not care. When you wake up on November 4th, no matter what happened, you win. Because we have assurance that fasting of the soul. There's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. You win. You win. Your, your candidate is guaranteed. He's sure and steadfast. He will win. And he will be there with you every step of the way. If you place your hope in lesser things, it's going to be painful for you. It's going to be painful for you on November 4th. It's going to be painful for you on that day. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Christ is Lord, he will look at you and say, you did not place your hope in me. You thought lesser men would secure the things that only I could secure. There is no hope there, church. And so let us turn our eyes to Christ and let us place our hope in him. And so is that, is that the answer? Is that all we do? We just kind of rest in this, in this hope in Christ? No. No, there are actions that we need to take right now. The church needs to stand up and take. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. But right now, all I want you to do is take the, your hope from the things that are grieving the heart of God and place it all in him. He wants all of your hope. Let's give it all to him. Let's bow our heads. As we close, here's what I want us to do just real quick with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. The truth is, most of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, have put some level of hope in a political party or a political candidate. And we're worried, man. We're afraid. They've instilled fear in us. If they don't win... Everything is ruined. We've bought into that. We believe that. That's the lie that we've bought into. There's no, there is no hope without them. My prayer is for you this morning that you would confess that right now. You would say, Father, I bought into a lie. Show me. Show me the, show me the error of my ways. Show me the lie that I've bought into. Show me my sin. Let me relinquish my grasp on that hope and cling all the more to, tightly to Christ, the sure and steadfast anchor of my soul, the one who died in my place and has risen from the grave to give me the full assurance of hope. Let me cling to him, knowing that in the end, he wins. Not Trump, not Biden, not any candidate that has ever been or ever will be, will ever win. Christ wins. And all of my hope is placed there. No matter what happens in this country, no matter what happens, what happens in this nation, Christ is my only hope. My only hope. Father, please don't ever let us waver from that. Please don't ever let them create fear in our hearts and fear in our minds that would distract us from the hope. Let us fear the Lord. Let us place our hope in you alone. I pray these things in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.